The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Paris Plus Art Fair, Hiroshi Sugimoto in London, and Marie Longsaint in Philadelphia. It's the second year of Paris Plus, the event that's taken over from FIAC as the leading French art fair. How is Art Basel's French flagship faring amid geopolitical turmoil and economic uncertainty? And is Paris still on the rise as a cultural hub? I speak to Georgina Adam and Kabir Jalla in Paris to find out more. The largest ever exhibition of the work of the Japanese photographer Hiroshi Sugimoto opened last week at the Hayward Gallery in London before travelling to Beijing and Sydney next year. I talked to its co-curator, Thomas Sutton. And this episode's work of the week is La Femme Cheval, or The Horsewoman, a painting made in 1918 by the French artist Marie Laurencin. She's the subject of a major survey called Sapphic Paris, opening this week at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia in the US. Cindy Kang, who co-curated the exhibition, tells us more about this landmark work in Longsaint's life. On theartnewspaper.com, you can access our new subscription offer. You can get a subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the second edition of Art Basel's Art Fair, Paris Plus, opened this week in the French capital after a launch last year that was widely seen as a success. This year's fair opens amid the horrific events being reported in Israel and Palestine, about which most art institutions have been silent. So what is the mood in Paris? Our editor-at-large, Georgina Adam, and our deputy art market editor, Kabir Jalla, are in Paris and they told me more. Georgina, you're in Paris. Obviously, there is a huge international crisis going on at the moment. There were mutterings around freeze last week about Israel-Palestine, but it seems to me that in Paris, those concerns have been much more to the fore. Is that fair? Yes, I think so. And because they've had two, one in France, in Arras, in a northern city, a murder of a schoolteacher, but also the French feel very close to Brussels and physically quite close. And there was the murder again by a terrorist, acknowledged terrorist of two Swedish tourists. So, I mean, it is high alert. There is a very strong police presence around the Elysee Palace, which is obviously where the president lives and around that area. They have had bomb alerts in the Louvre Museum and have had to evacuate, and also at Versailles, I think three. And they have had a number of bomb alerts in airports. I think 140 flights have been cancelled. However, around Paris Plus, it seems calm, shall we say. Right. And there was this letter, a letter sent to VIPs ahead of the fair. Is that right, Georgina? Yes, it was sent out, I think, on the Sunday just before it opened by Art Basel director Noah Horowitz. And it outlined all of the various measures that were being taken, extra measures because of security. It's not as bad as an airport. You don't have to take anything off. But they're not looking after parcels for for visitors. And there there is security. The reactions to the letter varied. Noah himself told me that he did have a couple of reactions from dealers who said that this was scaring people off. And anecdotally, I heard and others have heard as well, that some people have not come, particularly from America. 
However, that was before the letter. Okay. Kabir, your reporting sort of reinforced that. You went out and chatted to some dealers and they seem to suggest that some collectors have not come. Yes, uh, that's what Javier Perez, the founder of Perez Projects, told me. He also said that that was prior to the letter being sent out. Also, PACE's president, Samantha Brubel, has um, gone on record and said that some of her American clients didn't come to the fair for that reason. At Freeze last week, Kabir, there was a sort of sense of shock among the crowd there. There was a sense of perhaps it's a bit absurd to be doing this as an art fair, but things sort of continued. Is it, is it similar this week in the sense that, you know, sales are ongoing, people are going about their business, but there's just lots of informal chats about the horror of what's going on in the Middle East? I think that would be a pretty good summary. Sales were very, very strong at um, the opening day of Paris Plus. I will say that most talk around this issue was more around the security, around the terror attacks than rather the Israel-Hamas war. I think that is an incredibly polarising subject that is, you know, very much cleaved opinions in the art world. And this is a trade fair and people don't want to lose business by bringing up something that is incredibly contentious and they're not sure on which side the person across the dinner table stands. That's interesting. So tell us about the sales then. What have you heard? I mean, as I said, very strong. I think notably uh, virtually all major galleries that I spoke to or sent you know, sales reports into my inbox reported at least one sale of $1 million plus works about. David's Werner got the top spot and on VIP day sold a 2023 painting by Kerry James Marshall for $6 million and shifted around $20 million of art in that one day. Hauser and Worth to my tally sold about $15 million of art. There were works sold by Ryan Gander, Eugène Carrière from the Parisian dealer Camille Manor. So yeah, really, really big works were being sold. And then there were the works that were brought to the stand that had eight figures attached to them, notably Pace brought a Rothko that hadn't really been seen in public for several decades. It was sold um, at auction in 1988 and then privately in 95 by Pace and has been in the same private collection since. And that has yet to sell. But of course, we're in Europe. The market is perhaps a little bit more cautious. And this is a work that hasn't been you know, seen in a while. So it makes sense that it would take a couple of days to close the deal. And um, anecdotally, someone did see uh, Delphine Arnaud, the daughter of Bernard Arnaud, France's richest man and the LVMH conglomerate's um, owner, looking at the work flanked on either side by bodyguards. So read from that what you will. Indeed. Georgina, the presence of this big Rothko on the pay stand, it indicates that it's a slightly different feel to what people were looking at in London at the Freeze London Fair last week, as in there is some sort of classic modernism and some more blue chip works, shall we say, in amongst the works at Perry Plus. Yes, it's different from Freeze in the sense that Freeze separates Masters and London and physically separates them. They're two different fairs, obviously, the same ownership. Here you've got both together. So that does make a difference. And it was commented to me, but this is again anecdotally, that this is actually quite a good thing because you get the whole broad spectrum in the one fair. The pavillon that it's in, which is this temporary pavilion, next year Paris Plus is going to go back into the Grand Palais. But the temporary pavilion is a bit crowded. It's rather small. And it certainly felt very crowded on the first night. But I think the presence of these very high value works, notably the Rothko, is an indication of what Paris Plus can do in France. 
Tell me more about that in the sense that it, it can operate on its sort of own level, somewhat distinct from the other fairs, even though it's a sort of notionally an art Basel fair, even though it therefore is part of a, a brand with a massive identity, it's creating its own identity. And that's inflected by the presence of Paris, if you like. Yes, Paris has got two very extremely rich men. One is, in fact, the richest man in the world at the moment. I mean, those rankings change. And what I do think also is very impactful is the fact that you've got these two massive museums, private museums in Paris, plus an enormous number of exhibitions going on at the moment. But this, uh, the Le Vuitton Museum, which has got this extraordinary Rothko show with, I think, 161 works by Rothko. There's nowhere in London that's the size that's that sort of an institution that could put that sort of show on. And I think this is really a big plus for Paris. Is that something that you found, Kabir, in terms of your discussions with dealers and so on? Yeah, it really chimes with something that I was discussing with Stuart Shave, the London-based dealer who has just opened a Paris gallery this weekend. And he mentioned that there aren't any ambitious collectors in London at the scale that there are in Paris right now. And we sort of were, you know, collectively agreed that the last time that London saw that kind of energy was in the Saatchi era. And that hasn't been replicated since. Right. And Georgina, that sense of major collectors sort of affecting a market, is that is that a common trend in the art market? As in, if there are sort of anchors in terms of collectors within the art market, they can have a kind of ripple effect. Oh, absolutely. I do think so, because there's an emulation effect. Now, look at, for example, Dubai. Obviously, we're talking about a much smaller market, but there are no really major collectors in Dubai, with the result that they don't sort of pull up other collectors who have the same ambitions and who perhaps will go on to become more important collectors. And I think the fact that you've got these two collectors, particularly François Pinault, who is probably more of a committed collector than Bernard Arnault, But nevertheless, the Fondation Vuitton has put on this extraordinary Rothko show. There are posters for it plastered all over Paris, and it does make a difference. And interestingly, I did notice that a number of French collectors were snapping up quite pricey pictures, mainly pictures, mainly, I didn't see any sculpture, at the fair. That's interesting. In terms of the collector base at the fair, Kabir, I know that in your report, lots of people seem to be saying, hey, there's lots of Americans here. Is, is that your impression too? That is certainly what I've been hearing. Uh, David Zwerner told me very much so that there are more than Freeze London. I thought that was quite interesting and pointed. And yes, that was sort of the takeaway from most uh, leading dealers that more Americans chose to come to Paris Plus than to Freeze London. It's interesting, though, you said about the big sales and that there seems to be a buzz. But also in your report, you say that in the general market... It's not as good as last year. I guess it was a first year of the fair last year. So there was a lot of excitement around that. Of course. I mean, I think that's more to do just with how the general market was going last year. You know, any fair dealers were doing better. Um, Interest rates have hiked. The banks are not lending nearly as much. It is a different financial situation to what things were like last year. And of course, you can't ignore what's happening in the in the wider world. I mean, there is already terrible news and there may be worse news. And I think this has an impact. On top of that, recent auctions have not been particularly strong. Right. That's interesting. In terms of the gallery scene, though, I mean, you've mentioned already about Stuart Shave opening a new space, Kabir, but Georgina, there are a whole spate of new spaces. There really is a sense in which the gallery scene is consolidating, growing, etc., Absolutely. I mean, the splashiest is, of course, Hauser and Worth, which has opened an extraordinary 
gallery in the Golden Triangle, Louis Francois Premier. But there have been other gallery openings as well. Stuart Shave, as, as Kabir mentioned. Also in the foreign galleries, there was Mendes Wood, who's opened on the Place des Vosges. And also Jérôme Poggi, who is a French gallerist, has opened a really beautiful new space right opposite the Centre Pompidou. And in terms of those galleries, it sounds like lots of the galleries are rather mimicking what we're seeing in fairs, Kabir, in the sense that there's lots of painting. It's just a lot of painting everywhere. Yes, absolutely. I think that was a key takeaway from the commercial gallery shows. They all had sort of openings sort of based on locations. You know, if you're opening the eighth on one night, opening in Mary and the other. And there was a lot of painting, very beautiful painting. Thais Ropak had a wonderful Lisa Bryce show, beautiful works. Mama Anderson at David's Werner, again, gorgeous, very tasteful, but again, possibly very safe. I think one of the few standout works that wasn't a painting was Chantal Cruzel uh, showed a sculpture um, show by Jean-Luc Moulin. But I spoke to a Berlin curator who I know, and they wishing to remain anonymous, did point out that this city is full of uh, very beautiful, tasteful objects, but they are quite boring. And possibly, you know, that also contributes to the fact that that's why Paris is also having a very good market moment, because it shows works that sell very well and easily. Indeed. Georgina, you also pointed to the fact that the museum showing is extremely strong at this moment. I mean, we've just seen in London an extraordinary museum offering, but Paris is absolutely rivaling it, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, for example, at Musée d'Orsay, you've got both Peter Doig and Van Gogh. You've got Sophie Kahl at the Picasso Museum. You've got a show of Picasso drawings. You've got de Stahl at the Municipal Museum of Modern Art. Obviously, I've mentioned the Rothko. You've got Mike Kelly at the Bourse du Commerce and many more. There's an enormous amount of cultural offerings at the moment. So you'd say then, Georgina, that that much vaunted idea that Paris is back, Paris is really on the rise, is absolutely accurate from your assessment this week? I certainly think so. Yes, having been at both fairs, I think that Paris is definitely on the rise. And they have got the Olympics next year, which I think is an element as well. Yes, I think the cultural offering here the number of people who are here, the quality of Paris Plus. I thought it was a very high quality. Everything makes me feel that Paris is definitely on the rise at the moment. And lastly, in the weeks heading up to the fair, we were hearing a lot about bedbugs. That all seems to have gone very quiet, Georgina. Extraordinary. I mean, there was this hysteria in France about bedbugs about two weeks ago before the Middle Eastern problems and so on. People were actually taking their mattresses and burning them because they were so terrified of this invasion of bedbugs. And that has totally disappeared from the news. So no more bedbugs or we're just not worrying about them anymore. Kabir and Georgina, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Perry Plus opens on the 20th of October and continues until Sunday, the 22nd of October. You can follow our reporting from the fair at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Hiroshi Sugimoto and Marie Laurencin. But first, here's the news bulletin. Hundreds of prominent artists, including Tai Shani and Lawrence Abu Hamdan, are among the more than 2,000 leading actors, musicians, writers, filmmakers and other creatives calling for a ceasefire in Gaza in an open letter. And more of today's biggest contemporary artists, including Nan Golden, Tomas Saraceno, Carl Walker and Jeremy Della, are among more than 150 artists, curators, musicians, writers and publishers to assign a second open letter published on the 19th of October on the Art Forum website in support of Palestinian liberation. 
The signatories of the second letter demand that what they call the institutional silence around the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza be broken immediately. They write, silence at this urgent time of crisis and escalating genocide is not a politically neutral position. The signatories add that they reject violence against all civilians, regardless of their identity. Israel's deadly attack on the Gaza Strip, which has now killed more than 3,000 Palestinian people, comes after Hamas terrorists crossed into Israel on the 7th of October on a murderous rampage, killing more than 1,400 people and taking hostages. The international charity Action Against Hunger is warning of a health crisis on the brink of explosion due to the lack of water in Gaza. Members of Poland's art community have cautiously welcomed the results of Sunday's general election, which looks set to remove the ruling right-wing government from power. The governing Law and Justice Party, or PIS, won 35.4% of the vote, leaving it short of being able to form a majority in the Polish parliament. In its place, a broad swathe of opposition parties will now seek to form a coalition to lead the country, headed by Donald Tusk's Civic Coalition, which came second with 30.7%. The PIS is often accused of taking an ideal logically driven approach to culture and has removed key figures in museums and arts organisations from their posts. The path to a new government is in the hands of Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, who may first allow PIS the chance to form an administration before turning to Tusk and his fellow opposition leaders. The theft of 2,000 items at the British Museum began 20 to 25 years ago, according to George Osborne, the chairman of the museum's trustees. The news was revealed on Wednesday to the UK's House of Commons Culture, Media and Sport Committee. Following the theft, it's now been determined that the museum has 2,400,000 uncatalogued or partially catalogued objects which need to be properly documented. It was the failure to have recorded the gems which made it possible for an insider to gradually steal them from the storeroom without being detected for decades. Cataloguing will take an estimated five years and cost £10 million. No details of how this work will be funded were given. The committee was told that the museum had 1 million unregistered items that needed to be recorded, 300,000 that are registered but not digitised, and 1.1 million that are digitised but not photographed. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This autumn, Christie's takes us on an artistic journey, staging two exciting auctions of Islamic and Indian art in their headquarters in London. Highlights from the auction of art of the Islamic and Indian worlds, including rugs and carpets, on the 26th of October, include a sword and scabbard from the personal armoury of the Indian ruler Tipu Sultan and a Persian 16th century Safavid red ground palmet and bird carpet, formerly in the collection of the Rothschild family. Following this, on the 27th of October, will be the dedicated sale of 150 paintings from the collection of Toby Falk, a leading figure in the study of Indian paintings. Works are on view at 8 King Street in St James's, London from the 21st to the 26th of October. Entry is free and open to all. Discover more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, last week, a major exhibition of the work of the Japanese photographer Hiroshi Sugimoto opened at the Hayward Gallery in London. The most comprehensive survey of his work to date, it will travel next year to UCCA in Beijing and to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. It's co-curated by Thomas Sutton, and I spoke to him about the show. Thomas, there's a very nice quote from Hiroshi Sugimoto in the catalogue that sort of begins uh, Ralph Rugoff's essay, which is that he started out from a position of never believing his eyes. And that's a really interesting position to start by making a mechanical kind of art that has a strong conceptual basis. Tell us more about his beginning in photography. 
Yes, well, and I think what's interesting actually is that his beginnings were very early on. You know, he first used a camera as a child of 12 or 13, his dad's camera in Tokyo. And what's fascinating is that very soon after picking up a compact film camera, he started using it in quite conceptual ways. He took it to the cinema in Tokyo, in fact, and he he was enamoured of Audrey Hepburn at that time. So he was taking pictures of Audrey Hepburn with the camera concealed in the cinema. And obviously that has a lovely connection with some of the pictures that he went on to make as an artist in cinemas and theatres in the US and elsewhere. Indeed. But he was also taking pictures of model trains. And again, I think that connection between um, models and things in the world, real versions of things, if you like, Again, that was something that uh, he came back to as an artist. So I think even from a very young age, he was using the camera to somehow mediate between him and reality. And as I say, in a, as an artist later in life, he, he went on to explore that in much more profound and in-depth ways. He's resolutely analogue in his approach, right? So from the earliest pictures, obviously, in 1970s, when he first became a professional artist, he was using an analogue camera because that's what there was. But he stuck with it, right? Yes, he, he's been resolutely analogue, just as you say. And I think that's not just because analogue was what was available. You know, He was, even in the 70s, he was using equipment and techniques that were even then quite old-fashioned. You know, he uses, um, and still uses to this day, the wooden box camera. You know, it's almost a 19th century antique by now, this machine. It's a large format 8 by 10 negative camera with, you know, a lens that he slots into place on the front and he adjusts the height and the angle of it using these mechanical handles that he spins around. So it really is a very antiquated way of making pictures but Sugimoto has always maintained that the quality that he can achieve using that equipment is is superior to anything that he could use that's more recent in its development but I also think he's also said that he has honed his craft to such a degree you know he's worked at the process of analog photography and developing analog pictures that you know this is his artistic craft and it's one that of course he's very loyal to. And that sort of craft that you're talking about, when you hear other photographers respond to his work, you're really conscious of that, aren't you? Because other photographers revere him. You hear other photographers talking about his techniques, but also about the quality of his prints. And I'm, I was really conscious of that in the show. As objects, these things are absolutely astonishing, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I think, is why coming to the Haywood exhibition is so important, because, you know, you could look at these pictures reproduced on the internet or you know even in the the wonderful catalogue that we've produced but it isn't the same as standing in front of them they're large-scale photographs they've been meticulously developed by the artist in his studio in new york they've been mounted at the same studio by him and his assistants and they've been framed in fantastic frames that the artist has designed in different materials from aluminium to hardwoods to to lead so the whole production of these pictures is immensely important. And, um, you know, standing in front of them is essential for that reason. Let's talk about some of these series then. The first series, the dioramas. So this was made in 1976. He's 28 years old. And that, exactly that process that you were talking about earlier of responding to a fake world created through the dioramas in a natural history museum in New York 
prompted him to make this intriguing investigation into reality and, and also time, because I think Ralph in, in his essay on it says it's about effectively making dead things alive again. Yes, I mean, Sugimoto says that he's not a photographer that goes out into the world to find his subjects. You know, he often starts with an idea in his head and, and then the, the photographs are almost the working through of that idea. But as you say, his first artistic subject matter in the 70s was found. You know, he came across these dioramas in the Museum of Natural History, these almost theatrical sets of animal habitats. And he stood in front of them and he shut one eye and he realised by shutting that eye, the perspective disappears and all of a sudden these quite stagey, quite artificial, you know, almost slightly comical scenes, you know, they come to life and even more so when he brought his camera and his lighting and, and he began to make these meticulous pictures of these dioramas, which has led to the amusing misassumption that Sugimoto is a, is a wildlife photographer, <laughs> right. which, of course, he, he is nothing of the kind. You know, we've had visitors in the gallery since the show has opened. Well, I've been in there and they've, they've said, you know, what's going on here? Because they look like animals in the wild, but there's something off. Yeah. You know, there's something slightly uncanny about the setup and... And that relationship between what's real and what's fake is obviously very important for Sugimoto, but also the ability of the camera to deceive us and to play games with us. He's signposting that and he's aware of that at a very early point in the 70s, before digital manipulation and you know, post-production, before these things became commonplace. So you know, there's, a, there's a kind of prophetic element to those pictures as well, I think. That's absolutely right. And it's intriguing to me that the camera almost becomes a kind of character through the show, that he imbues the camera with, with a kind of agency. And that's really clear in the Theatres and Drive-In series, where he talked about it as images that no person had seen, but the camera had seen. So tell us about that series, that extraordinary technique that he developed through it. Yes, I mean, these these are one of the series for which Sugimoto is kind of most known. And it is, you know, it's a series that came from, a, a, again, an idea, as I said. Again, in the 70s, he was in a New York cinema, St. Mark's Square, and he, he set up his camera and he opened the, the shutter at the beginning of the film and then he closed the shutter at the end of the film. And what he had when he developed this photograph was... At the centre of the picture, a glowing white screen. And around it, the architecture and the environment of the cinema that was lit from the light that came from the projector and reflected off the screen during the film. So these pictures that he went on to make a great you know, number of in, in many different places around the US, you know, they have different aspects, but at the core is this duration, this, this period of time which is captured into a single image. So you have the entire film contained within this glowing white screen and so you know our exhibition is called time machine of course these are kind of emblematic of that exploration of time but they also have this otherworldly he says an almost spiritual dimension for him because you're drawn into this sort of neutral infinite space at the center which almost makes you think of a kind of experiential artwork of, of someone like James Terrell I mean Sugimoto himself was very interested in the work of, of Dan Flavin and minimalists when he arrived in New York in the 70s. And this glowing white screen, which is a feature film, a Hollywood feature film condensed, it is almost like a portal to another dimension. And, and that sense of time, too, is really present in the seascapes, isn't it? Because, again, he came up with the idea and then put it into action. He 
is standing in front of a landscape and he has a, a sort of an, an idea about a kind of spiritual idea again about the first humans what we have in common with them and, and it is this idea of looking out to the horizon and they are timeless images in certain ways yeah absolutely this is another aspect of time in Sugimoto's photographs but it's not just two hours or the length of a film you know here he's trying to transport us back many millennia to our distant ancestors and you know he reasons and he talks about his internal question and answer sessions and as you referred to he reasons that whilst the land is always changing from humans building natural disasters erosion the land is is always changing you know paradoxically because the sea is in constant flux and is 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 constantly moving it's actually the earth's surface most permanent landscape so by looking at this blank expanse of water and sky we are actually seeing something that has has always been there you know it's almost kind of a biblical genesis taking us right back and he's taken those pictures all around the world there are more than 200 in the series that's right and that idea of them being from around the world is crucial isn't it because fundamentally we're just looking at the horizon. We're looking at the sea and the sky. Yeah. And there's some in Liguria in, in Italy, but there's some in Japan. There's yeah. some on the British coast and so on. So it, in a way, it could be anywhere. But at the same time, he's alluding to how it relates to us all. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there's always some slight element of paradox or I almost want to say perversity with, with Sugimoto. <laughs> but, you know, so he's titling these photographs after the places that he traveled to. But really, they could have all been taken from the same spot because there aren't any, you know, shorelines or boats or, or birds. You know, we don't see anything in those images apart from sky and sea and equally divided by the horizon line, which crosses the image at the center. So, yes, whilst he's traveled around the world to create them, we don't see any landmarks that tell us what we're looking at. But to me, that suggests this kind of idea of a kind of emptiness um, emptiness in a Buddhist spiritual sense that Sugimoto talks about, that in fact, you know, this is not necessarily about places in the world as much as about human consciousness and our e experience of, of reality. And, and somehow he, he proves that point with this, this traveling, but also staying still in some funny way. <laughs> And talking about Buddhism, within the seascapes, there's almost a chapel set within them, which is the Sea of Buddha series, which was this extraordinary series that he took in a temple in Japan. Yes. Apparently, after a long, long negotiation, he finally got access to it. But tell us about that. Yes. So um, in our largest gallery, upstairs at the Hayward Gallery, we have the seascapes around the the walls of, of the gallery and they're arranged from night to morning in almost like a clock as I like to think about them but then yeah Sugimoto has designed this yeah as you say it's all, it's a kind of inner sanctum within that closed off by walls you walk in and uh, you're surrounded by an installation in a way of photographs of a thousand and one figures from this Buddhist temple near Kyoto in Japan within this huge central figure of a Buddhist deity called Kanon a massive image which is at the center of this display. And yes, uh, it's called the Sea of Buddhas, and it's a series that Sugimoto worked very hard to get access to, to take. Normally there's no photography allowed inside this temple. And uh, when he was given access, the way he decided to go about it was 
only to use natural light. So he removed all of the, the fluorescent lighting that ordinarily lights this medieval environment. And then he took his pictures at, at morning time when the sun was rising um, to try and, again, I suppose, transport people back in time to when worshippers would have encountered this temple back in the 12th century when it was built. So it, it very much, you know, this strongly has a spiritual dimension, obviously, in it's interesting because Sugimoto also, in terms of Buddhism and Eastern philosophy and religion, he always jokes that when he arrived in California as a young man, he'd been studying Hegel and Marx and uh, Western philosophy and economics as a student in Japan and arrived in California. And all of his kind of colleagues there were really interested in Buddhist spirituality and these kind of ideas. And it was only then that, that Sugimoto realized he needed to educate himself in these kind of ideas as well. That, that kind of paradox uh, and that kind of surprising inversion is exactly the kind of thing that Sugimoto loves. Talking about the perversity aspect and this paradoxical element, one of the most intriguing series in The Hayward Show is the series about architecture. Oh, yes. Because that does seem a genuinely perverse thing. I was really minded when I was walking around that gallery that these genuinely iconic architectural forms have been snapped so many times on people's mobile phones now and on tourist cameras and video cameras. And he chooses to almost entirely blur them out so that we can only detect their essential form but it's actually a really as well as being perverse it's a very philosophical approach to the notion of architecture isn't it yeah very much i mean this was a series that began in the 90s when he was commissioned by an architectural magazine to take pictures of modernist buildings around the world and they're mainly in europe and north america but we also have um, luis barragan's house in mexico and other buildings as well. There's Le Corbusier, there's Mies van der Rohe. So as you said, kind of icons of modernist architecture, which is very important to Sugimoto, who himself is a designer and an architect. But yes, his approach when he was given this commission was to essentially blur all the detail out of the building. So all that you see is, is their outline and their kind of essential form. And I think you're certainly right that on one level, you know, when we see a, an outline of the Eiffel Tower, it actually makes us think about it as a structure in a way that when we see a, an in-focus image, you know, our mind sort of presses next on it because it's such a familiar <laughs> image. But the way he describes it is interesting as well because I think it relates strongly to his photographic and artistic approach in general. And he says that by blurring them out, he's actually transporting us back to the point at which these buildings were just the germ of an idea in the architect's imagination. So, you know, when Mies van der Rohe was first thinking about the Seagram building on New York's Park Avenue, you know, he had this square rectilinear outline in his mind against the New York skyline as, as a possibility of how it might look. So um, by taking them out of their context and by removing the detail and the, the signs of time's effect on these buildings in the intervening years, Sugimoto is somehow taking us back to when they were box fresh, if you like, or even, even before that, when they were just um, a figment in the imagination of their, their architect. And for me, that's interesting because it takes us back to that first point I made about Sugimoto starting with ideas for his own photographs and then the production being somehow, as he says, the proof, the evidence of that idea. So he's kind of thinking about architecture in the same way that really buildings are just the proof, the evidence that comes after the, the real work which happens you know, in the mind. Obviously, Photography is a medium of light. But the wonderful thing about Sugimoto's work, it seems to me, is that on the one hand, 
he is dealing with that on a very practical basis in the very process of making photographs. But it's an investigation of light in so many of its properties, right? And, and I'm really conscious of that in two of his most recent series, which is the lightning fields and optics. Yeah. He's looking at the properties of light, what light does, how it works. So there's a kind of scientific approach almost there. Absolutely. And I think that um, Sugimoto is he's interested in this distinction between art and science. And he says that they come from the same root, essentially. They're, they're kind of deviations from the same root. But yes, he really does have the approach and the mindset of a scientist, of someone making experiments. He doesn't take the medium for granted in any way. He wants to play with it in his own hands and to see how it works and how it reacts. And, and in that way, he's very connected to the invention of photography and the roots of photography itself. And, you know, the lightning pictures that you mentioned, they follow in the footsteps of Fox Talbot and Faraday, who were making experiments with static electricity, just at the point that the positive negative photographic process was being invented. And, you know, these pictures that Sugimoto has made, you know, he used a a Van der Graaff static generator and his uh, light-sensitive paper to create these sparks that expose the paper in a dark room, and you, you see these amazing, you know, lightning-esque forms, which are, you know, just a, a cameraless photograph of of electricity, um, and that's very much Sugimoto with with this kind of scientific as well as artistic interests, and and then the optics you mentioned, which. We again have in the upper gallery, which is flooded with light, which is fantastic. We borrowed all of the prints mm. from the artist, and he has very generously allowed us to display them upstairs in natural light, which really does present them in, in the most wonderful way. Again, those pictures, the optics, uh, were directly inspired by uh, historical scientific investigation. In this case, it was Isaac Newton. And uh, Sugimoto was browsing an auction room at Christie's, I, I think, and, and found a, a historic copy of Newton's Optics, which is the treatise from the 18th century in which he, he proved that light isn't this neutral, clear, white element. When you refract it, you see the colours of the rainbow that it's made up of. And um, Sugimoto, you know, again, he dived into that research for himself and he used a huge prism to refract light onto the wall of his studio, which he had plastered using a, a traditional Japanese plaster technique, this white plaster that he's passionate about. <laughs> um, and then he was given the, some of the last Polaroid paper when the Polaroid company went bust in Japan. It's since kind of, you know, been given a new lease of life, but when it first went bust, he was given some of this paper and he used the Polaroid camera to take pictures of the light on, on the wall of his studio. And then, and this is actually the exception to the, the insistence on analog, which we, we started with. He then used a digital process to blow them up um, to these large format C prints. But the effects are these spectacular expanses of colour, you know, that really seem to reference colour field painting and Rothko's paintings, but are also at root this very experiential optical examination of the properties of light in the, the scientific sense that you're asking about. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Hiroshi Sugimoto, Time Machine, is at the Hayward Gallery in London until the 7th of January 2024. It's then at the UCCA Centre for Contemporary Art in Beijing from the 23rd of March to the 23rd of June next year, and then at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, Australia, from the 2nd of August to the 27th of October 2024.
And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The exhibition Marilyn Saint, Sapphic Paris, opened this week at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. It's the first major show focusing on Laurent work in the US for more than three decades. Laurent who was born in the French capital in 1883 and died there in 1956, is a figurative painter who also worked across multiple media. She achieved acclaim in her lifetime, but her reputation has suffered since her death with only intermittent bursts of attention. Laurent defies easy categorization. She crafted a space for herself between the cubist avant-garde, queer literary and artistic circles, and the worlds of dance and fashion. But her paintings of the late 1910s and 1920s are regarded by many as her finest achievement. One of them is La Femme Chaval, or The Woman Horse, painted in 1918. And Cindy Kang, the co-curator of the Barnes exhibition with Simonetta Frechelli, told me more. You can see the image on our Instagram and in the web story for this episode. Cindy, Marie Lancin made this painting in 1918. Where was she when she made it? Well, she was living in Spain at the time. She had married a German artist named Otto von Watien in 1914. And shortly after they got married, World War I broke out, uh, unfortunately. They were actually on their honeymoon in the south of France. And so then they had to flee because a wife will take on the husband's nationality. So as soon as she got married to Otto, Marie became German. And Otto did not want to enlist and fight with the Germans against the French. So the couple fled to Spain and they were very sad to leave Paris. It was a very, very tough time for them living in exile as well as getting news from the war of their friends getting killed. It was a horrible time for them. Um, But, you know, in this time period, Lancin is still painting. She's in Madrid. She's visiting the Prado. She's inspired by Goya. She's inspired by Velázquez. Um, And she's got a whole new aesthetic world to work in, you know, away from Paris, away from the Louvre, away from Cubism. Right. So she was really missing Paris in lots of ways. But actually, in terms of her artistic development, it really hastened her developing a very distinctive style. She'd already become very established right, in that cubist circle in Paris. But this led her to find her own voice all the more. Exactly. I think it was this crucible of exile in Spain out of which she developed her own artistic voice, where she was really able to break away from the influence of cubism and really think about what it is she wanted to say, what kind of vision of modernism does she have. Can you give us an idea of her kind of artistic reputation at that time in terms of, you know, was she widely showing before she went in exile? Was she highly regarded by the other painters and so on? Pre-World War I, she was still in the beginning of her career. So she was much more of an emerging artist, I would say. You know, she was in Picasso's circles. She was showing at the Section d'Or. She was showing with the Salon Cubist at the Salon des Indépendants, at the Salon d'Automne. But she was still very much young and new and emerging and, you know, within the Cubist circles. And it was not until her time in Spain where she starts to circulate among very different artists. She's, she reconnects with Bacabia in Barcelona in 1916 and is, you know, working in data circles, which is incredibly different, right, from the work that she's doing. Absolutely, yeah. But I think this international community of exiles that she's circulating in, in Spain, really helps her to find her voice, find her own way. And let's talk about the painting then. It's an extraordinary picture. On the one hand, 
it's a kind of self-portrait. But on the other hand, it's about womanhood more generally and in a much more complicated way than just looking at herself and studying herself in a mirror, right? Yeah, it's an extraordinary self-portrait. It's really hard to think of a precedent for it, you know? But she is depicting herself as an artist. Still, you can see that she's holding a paintbrush in her hand, but she has this really fantastical headdress and her face is totally in shadow or mostly in shadow. And yet she's looking out at the viewer very calmly, very confidently. There's a sense of melancholy there. So there's this sense of darkness and suffering and and it feels a little surrealist too like a touch of that surrealism she was in touch with andre breton you know in in 1917 so she's already part of those circles also and she's really kind of reinventing her idea of herself as an artist this portrait i think also shows you the way she's developing her palette it's incredibly restricted right it's pink it's blue it's gray and that is her signature palette. That she they become Lancin's colors. They, they, yes. you know, they are. You know, you recognize her paintings instantly by their coloration. Exactly, right? and it's at this moment that she's developing this palette and and really honing in on it. So tell us about the form of the face, because one of the things about her painting, as it gets more mature, if you like, is that she's not interested in mimetically representing features of a particular individual. That often the noses almost completely disappear. For instance, tell us more about that. Well, in this self-portrait, her face is quite elongated. She has the dark eyes that is characteristic of, you know, many of her female figures. But you really can identify her by the hair because she has this characteristic in her self-portraiture, this characteristic mane of frizzy kind of gray hair. And she was really emphasizing this by including the dog, that animal that's right next to her leaping. They have the same kind of mane, that, that frizzy gray mane. So that is one of these identifying characteristics that you can pick out um, and find Laurence in group figural paintings as well as in self-portraits. But she also has these very elongated fingers, these hands that she paints uh, in all of her female figures as well as in male figures, interestingly enough. There's an interesting thing about the animal aspect, of course, is that you can't actually identify a horse in this picture, even though it's called the woman horse. I was looking desperately trying to find actual evidence of a horse in there, but it, it, it's not there, right? No, you're not the only one. <laughs> That's the central kind of evocative mystery of this painting, right? Why is it called woman horse? There is no horse in the painting. Um, we have a few theories about that. One is that the this idea of the femme cheval in French is evoking the figure of the Amazon. And the Amazon comes from this ancient Greek female warrior figure. They rode horses. They they battled with bows and arrows. But this Amazon figure at this time in Paris came to represent the lesbian avant-garde. Natalie Clifford Barney was called the Amazon. So these were circles that Lauren Sant was part of, that she was close to. And we do think that one interpretation of the femme cheval is that it is referencing this figure of the Amazon. The other interesting connection, I think, with the horse is a poem that Laurence Sand wrote. So Laurence Sand was also a poet, or she wrote a lot of poetry. She was very close with many poets. Of course, her early relationship with Guillaume Apollinaire um, was a very fruitful kind of dialogue between painting and poetry, between the two of them. And in Spain, especially, she started to write a lot of poetry. It was part of her way of working. She found it hard 
to paint continually. It was so horrible to be exiled during war that she sometimes found that she couldn't even paint. So she was writing a lot of poetry, and there's this one poem that she wrote that's called Horse. I'll read you an English translation that was translated by a colleague here in Philadelphia named Nick Mudry. She writes, The horse and I have the same life. The wounded horse dies without neighing. I cry and scream. Oh, horse, I want to see you die and grow accustomed to being abroad. So it's, it really speaks to that idea of exile, doesn't it? So her remove from Paris and, and obviously there's the death and destruction on the battlefields and so on. So there's, it's a poem in which explains this kind of greyness, if you like, that darkness within this picture to a certain extent. Absolutely. I think you can see that suffering in the dark grey tones, in her gaze. And you can see from this poem that the, this idea of the woman horse is very much a part of her identity as an artist, as a female artist in exile. Right. And of course, there's these birds. Tell us what the birds signify. Yeah, these two beautiful blue birds, one that is, you know, popping out against the pink background. These birds, one interpretation that we have of them is that they reference her relationship with Nicole Krul. Nicole Krul was a Parisian fashion designer. She was the sister of Paul Poiré. And she was one of Laurencin's patrons before the war in Paris. Laurencin painted a portrait of her, a beautiful oval portrait that we have in the exhibition. And during the war, Nicole's husband, André Croul, was sent off to the front. And Nicole decided to go visit Laurencin in Spain. And it was at this time that they began an intimate, kind of amorous relationship. They wrote love letters to each other. They wrote love poetry to each other. And one of the poems that Nicole wrote to Marie, I think, makes it very clear that one interpretation of these blue birds is that it is a symbol of their love and desire for each other. So Nicole writes to Marie, Your eyes are blue birds. Your breasts are white birds. Your lip is a firebird, your throbbing bird neck. Your hands are pink birds who fly with charming gestures and prettily alight, cool on my burning brow. Your heart is a rare bird, easy to frighten. Savage, tender, and strange. It hides to love me. That's lovely. Let's talk more about this subject because there's a wonderful quote from Jean Cocteau, who I'm a big fan of, in the catalogue, which alludes to her own paintings as representing animals. And so there's this sort of sapphic modernism, this this allegorical language of animals. But actually, Cocteau characterizes the paintings themselves as animals. And I love this. And he says that. If a person who does not like animals, if a hunter approaches, the painting disappears. And in the catalogue essay, you intriguingly suggest that this might be about a queer audience for Laurencin's paintings. Yeah, that was an amazing quote from Cocteau that I found in Letters and Archives. And we were puzzling over it. And we've been puzzling for a long time over the exact role and meaning of all of these animals in Lawrence Sands' work, especially as they're not identifiable necessarily. Of course, okay, these are blue birds, but a lot of the mammals, the dog here, are they some amalgamation between a dog and a fox, a horse, a deer, even llamas? It's very hard to tell what these animals are, and they're, they're purposefully unplaceable, right? They're fantastical creatures. So it's clear that this animal component is part of this utopian world, if you want to say, or this dreamlike world that Laurence is creating. And it is a world for her, for her to exist in as a, as a queer woman. So there is a tantalizing kind of connection that we're speculating on between this idea of the animal and how it might code queerness in her work. I think there's 
a lot more to be explored there. I think I'm really hoping that future scholars take this and run with it and and come up with their own interpretations and ideas. At this time, she begins to get a really great level of success, right? But jumping forward many years, that reputation has not remained intact. She has been very unwritten about and untalked about for a long time. How do we account for this? Because she had great fame in her lifetime. She was surrounded by numerous artists of great renown and so on. Why isn't Marie Lansin more highly regarded? Well, one reason for that, I think, is that she was very attentive to the market. She was incredibly successful and popular in the 1920s. And in the 1930s, she very much capitalized on that success and painted a lot and painted a lot of what people wanted. So in the 30s, the work does get a bit repetitive. It doesn't have the same bite. I don't know, that that darkness under the sweetness that you find in the in the work in the 20s and the teens. And I think how prolific she was in the 30s, selling her work was really great for her financially. I mean, she was very successful. She had a country house. She wore Chanel. You know, she lent money to friends. She had to support herself, right? She was not from a wealthy family. She definitely had to make her own living. So she did do that. And that is one reason, perhaps, why her reputation has suffered. And of course, your show will hopefully change all that. But one of the things that I wanted to speak about was the way that there are many painters working today who seem to be picking up on Marie Lancin. And I'm thinking about people like Lisa Bryce and and also the very fact that there is a great homage to her from the 1960s by Helen Frankenthaler. So she has a capacity still to speak to painters. Yeah, and I think today, as with our show, what people are picking up on is this exaggerated femininity, this very strongly expressed femininity. She's not shy about the pink and the ribbons and the pearls and all of that. And I think she was difficult to place, perhaps during the 90s and the early aughts, in a certain wave of of feminist art history. But I think Today, we can kind of read this exaggerated femininity in a more recuperative light, that it was this queer femininity that was about performance, that was about gender, as fluid as a performance. And I think people can see and appreciate that today. Cindy, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Marie Lancin, Sapphic Paris, is at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia in the US from the 22nd of October until the 21st of January next year. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Georgina and Kabir, Thomas and Cindy. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.